Thank you. Great music this morning. Uh, again, I want to introduce a well-known speaker here at Summit Park, <laughs> Pastor Dave McAllister, who's uh, blessing us with his presence again today and filling in. Uh, we were talking before the service how uh, Easter Sunday for a preacher is kind of like the Super Bowl, and it's the last day that Pastor Monty would not want to be here amongst us. But Dave, we are very glad to have you here so faithfully filling the pulpit. Come up and share God's word with us. Well, the privilege truly is all mine. I deeply enjoy being with you. You've become like a home church away from home. Uh, Tim mentioned that I was giving up my wife's birthday. It's actually tomorrow. The reason I said yes, in part, to preaching this morning is I need some gift ideas. (laughs) So if you want to meet me in the back later, that would be great. Well, there are three holidays that serve as constant reminders to us as Christians of the importance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The big three, Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter, celebrating his birth, his death, and his resurrection. I don't think it's an overstatement to say there's simply no bigger days than those three for the church. But of the three, I honestly believe that only one is surrounded by the surprising element of the truly glorious and miraculous. People are born all the time, though not in the way that Jesus was born. And people certainly die all the time, though not in the way that Jesus did. But that being said, no one has ever experienced what Jesus experienced that Easter Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago. The glorious miracle of resurrection. He is risen. He's risen indeed. All four Gospels record the story of Jesus' resurrection. And just as his crucifixion was established to be an event within history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened at a specific time, in a specific place, amidst specific people. This morning, I want for us to turn our attention to the experience of three of those specific people on that first Easter Sunday. Three women who were the initial witnesses to this unexpected and glorious event. By considering our text, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, I want to direct our attention to the remarkable conclusion and glorious climax of the gospel according to Mark. For I believe it is in this text we read of when the sun had risen. So if you are able to, I invite you to stand for the reading of Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. Now, I will be reading from the ESV. Mark writes this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, 
they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father God, as we come to you this Easter morning, we ask that you, in your mercy and grace, would open up these truths to us as never before, that we might understand, that we might um, be able to sense what was going on in the hearts and minds of those women as the first witnesses to the resurrection of your son. Lord, thank you for this morning, a glorious one at that. May you be pleased by the preaching of Christ, both crucified and resurrected. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This account is given to us for many reasons. It's given to us so that it can be heard, as we've heard it this morning. It's been given to us so it can be read, even memorized. Some of us uh, memorize large portions of Scripture. Maybe some of you have memorized this passage. And it's been given to us so that it might be cherished and enjoyed, even dramatized. I've, I've seen these events uh, played out by actors and actresses. But this account is also given to us so that it might be investigated, And so I want to do that this morning with these eight verses. I want to ask four specific investigative questions. Let's look at the text, verse number one, uh, verse one. Uh, When the Sabbath was passed, uh, Mark is is indicating the time here. Uh, At this point, the city would have been beginning to open back up for business, having been closed. And, and, And it could have possibly been as early as that Saturday night. Mark says, uh, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And so we begin with our first question, a simple one at that. Question number one, who exactly were these women? Who are they? Uh, They're obviously the three main characters in this account. Well, let's look at them. Mary Magdalene. Uh, She was a Galilean woman, most likely from the town of Magdala, which was located on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark and Luke both identify her as someone who, quote, from whom seven demons had gone out. We know her. We know of the way in which God had worked in her life uh, through the miracle of of, of, of Christ delivering her. Second, the other Mary. Mark tells us in Uh, 15, chapter 15, verse 40, that that this Mary was, quote, the mother of James the younger, or the less, or 
or, or, or James of, or excuse me, the mother of, of, of Joseph. And then thirdly, Salome. We know her to be the mother of James and John, a.k.a. the sons of Zebedee. And there's a possibility, according to John 19, 25, that Salome may have been the sister of Jesus' mother Mary, which would have then made James and John the cousins of James. Very unique characters. But what unites these three women is that they had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. They had financially supported both him and his disciples, and they had eventually served as witnesses to Jesus' crucifixion. But what's important to understand for the sake of this text, our text this morning, is that these three women were some of the most committed followers that we will encounter in all of the Gospels. What sets these three ladies apart, these three followers of Christ, what sets them apart from every other character in this unfolding drama was that they deeply, deeply loved Jesus. So much so that unlike Jesus' male disciples, they were actually inclined to do something for Jesus in his death other than run and hide. These women weren't hiding somewhere with their tails tucked between their legs. Rather, it would appear that they have some of the strongest faith of all of Jesus' followers. All three of them loyal to their master to the seemingly bitter end. Mark tells us in verse 1 of chapter 16 that these three women, quote, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. Um, Some historical context. Uh, What we need to understand is that back then Jewish people would often anoint dead bodies as a way of enhancing that which would have been decaying. And in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that both of the Marys would have observed Jesus' hasty burial that Friday evening. And so knowing that their Lord's body had been insufficiently prepared, they now choose to return with additional spices and ointments at great risk to themselves, I might add. And without question, this act would have been an incredible act of sacrificial love and compassion towards their Lord. This wasn't just practical. This was, for them, very deeply personal. Having been loved so well by Jesus, these three women now respond in loving service to their crucified Savior. And professing, possessing a faith that was remarkably greater than their fear, they decide to go to the place where Jesus was buried. Verse 2, we pick back up. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. The first day of the week. This is the second indication of time that Mark gives us in his account. And this is precisely when Jesus had predicted would be the time of his resurrection, was it not? The third day. Day one is what we would understand to be Friday, roughly 3 p.m., the ninth hour when Jesus died all the way to 6 p.m., what the Jews of that time recognized as being sundown. 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday would be day two, and 6 p.m. Saturday until sometime early that Sunday morning, we would understand to be the third day when Jesus rose. Now, as an aside, and I, I can't help but avoid saying this, but 
I have to admit that I love that small bit of commentary offered by Mark in the middle of verse 2, when the sun had risen. Because in its English interpretation, there's this sort of unintended double meaning. The sun had risen. Yes, S-U-N is what Mark essentially writes, but for us, we understand that the S-O-N, sun had indeed risen as well, as these ladies would soon find out. And these women would have traveled to Jesus' tomb so very early to try and avoid any sort of confrontation by anyone. They weren't, they weren't going down to the tomb looking for a fight. Very much the opposite. Nevertheless, they didn't wait for everything to die down before going to anoint the one whom they loved so dearly. Rather, they went at an hour when they believed would be best, at their earliest opportunity. At a time when very few people, if any, would be around in order that they might accomplish what God had sovereignly laid upon their hearts to do. Verse 3, Mark says this, "And, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Here again, we see a a, a group, small group of disciples who not only embodied confident faith, but demonstrated such by moving forward with their plans without having all of their questions answered. These women headed out to anoint a body that was essentially barricaded in a stone tomb with no plan for removing the obstacle. Men, women, that is faith. And when's the last time you or I lived like that? Alongside of the soldiers that had been placed outside of Jesus' tomb the day before, That boulder was one of the largest obstacles that those three women would face that day, or so it seemed. And it was obviously no small boulder. It was, in the Greek, it's translated as exceedingly great, megas. This is a massive obstacle for them. And it had been placed there deliberately to not just keep the inevitable odor in, but to also keep any and all people out. And that boulder served as an immovable seal, which would have surely stopped those women in their tracks if it had remained there. It might interest you to know Mark is, only, is actually the only gospel writer to record this discussion. Who will roll away the stone, they were asking each other. Again, an apparent barrier to these ladies' missions. And, and can I add without sounding too sexist, I cannot help but imagine that this would have been a very different discussion and debate had it been three of Jesus' male disciples. You wait till we get there. You just watch me. That's question number one. Who were these women? Question number two, as we do some digging, some investigating, why did they go to the tomb? Why did they go to the tomb? What's fascinating, despite knowing what stood in their way, these three women headed to Jesus' tomb that day simply by sheer faith. And I think many of us, if we were honest, would admit that we probably would have stayed home that morning and continued to grieve the incredible loss of our Master and Lord. But not these three. Not the two Marys and Salome. Hebrews 11 verse 1 We're given a definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. That's what they possessed at a heart level. Assurance, conviction, incredible faith. And I believe these three loving followers and disciples were essentially going by faith to the tomb with the belief in their hearts that God was going to do something once they arrived there. Still, one begins to wonder, what were you thinking? I mean, what were these women thinking that they would actually encounter that morning at the tomb? What we do know is they weren't, going, they weren't venturing to the tomb so that they could just verify Jesus' prophetic claims about rising again. That's not on their minds. That's not their intent. Even still, what they did find obviously was not what they intended to find that Easter morning. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone, that massive boulder, had been rolled back. Mark adds, it was very large. Our initial question is, how? How was the stone rolled back? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. Rather, it's Matthew who gives us some insight into how this occurred. Matthew 28, verse 2, we read this, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And it would seem from this observation that God had sovereignly prepared the scene for all that was to occur that Easter morning by removing one of the largest human obstacles. That's the how, but why? Why was the stone rolled back? To let Jesus out of the tomb? Of course not. Instead, it was to allow those women in. God intended for those early morning visitors to be the first witnesses to one of the greatest, most glorious miracles, the resurrection of his crucified son. In verse 5, we read, And entering the tomb, more specifically the outer chamber, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, right where Jesus would have originally been placed by Joseph of Arimathea. And Mark says he was dressed in a white robe, which at first indication suggests that he was an angel. And Mark adds, and they were alarmed. Luke actually tells us in his account that there were two angels sitting in the tomb. So we would understand Mark to simply be focusing upon the spokesman of this sort of celestial duo. But would you notice the final statement in that verse where we read of the women's response to what they saw in Jesus' tomb? Mark states that they were, quote, alarmed, amazed by what appeared before their eyes. Mark tells us they were essentially left in a state of shock and awe. That's what Mark tells us, what he indicates, what he lays out for us to analyze. The initial response of the very first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection was not praise, it was fear. They were absolutely dumbfounded by what they saw. I mean, it's safe to assume that what they had expected to see in the tomb that Sunday morning was exactly, precisely what they had seen in the tomb that Friday night. Don't you agree? Nevertheless, it was not. And as Mark records, what they saw in that moment caused them 
to not be joyful, but to be absolutely astonished. Question number three. Why did they go into the tomb? Why did they go into the tomb? Again, we have to ask, what are they intending to find in there? And seeing that young man sitting there, do you at all think that they possibly believed it to maybe be Jesus? I mean, one has to wonder. But Mark tells us this, verse 6. And the young man, the young angel, said to them, do not be alarmed. Which is, can I add, usually what an angel has to say when he's visiting somebody? Don't freak out. And it's not just at the resurrection, it's even at the birth of Christ. Don't be alarmed, fear not. He continues, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Here the angel gives the women an explanation for what he invites them to now see with their own eyes. The explanation, one word, resurrection. Resurrection. But why the statement, see the place where they laid him? Why bother to tell these women, look, look in the inner burial chamber where Jesus' body had previously rested? Why say that? Why instruct them to behold the linen wrappings and the meticulous folded face cloth that once covered him? Why? Answer? Because of what the angel says next. Look at verse 7. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Verse 6, see. Verse 7, but go. Look, but don't linger. The angel says everything that he says so that he might essentially commission these three women as the very first Christian missionaries with a very distinct and particular message. Jesus is not dead. He's risen. And as a good detective, we ask more questions. Why does the Young man, why does the angel single out the apostle Peter? Right? Tell his disciples and Peter. Well, answer, two reasons. First, as a way of graciously acknowledging to Peter that he was still among the, among the group of true disciples. After all, was he not the one who had denied Jesus three times following his master's arrest? Go, tell his disciples and tell Peter. But the second reason, I believe, is because Peter would ultimately play a pivotal role in the proclamation of the same gospel message that would be so foundational to the birth of the early church. He is not dead. He is risen. It's the message we declare every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday. He's no longer in the grave. He is risen. In fact, we read in Matthew 16, pre-death, pre-resurrection, we read of this exchange and encounter between Jesus and Peter. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 15, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, who essentially functioned as the spokesperson 
for all 12 disciples. And an interesting one at that, given his history of putting his foot in his mouth. But here he doesn't, verse 16. Who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, women, that's Peter's confession of faith there. One that was brought about by the work of God. How do we know? Because of what Jesus says in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, you can say what you just said, Peter, not because you've put all the pieces together, but because my Father has revealed it to you. In verse 18, Jesus continues, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's some sort of authority. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The angel insists that Peter hear this message firsthand. And as it turns out, of all the themes contained within Peter's sermons as recorded in the book of Acts, of all the themes, the event of Jesus' resurrection would end up being the most referenced and the most explained. Why? Because it was so central. It is so central to who Jesus is. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Again, why Galilee? Answer, as a way of bringing Jesus' ministry to Peter and many of the other disciples full circle. After all, it was along the shores of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus first called Peter to follow him. It was primarily there in Galilee that Jesus had discipled those 12 men and it would ultimately be there in Galilee that Jesus would eventually commission them for full-time evangelistic ministry. See the end of Matthew 28. But coming back to our text and returning our focus to the main characters, those women, those women had come that morning Not to be prepared for ministry, but to anoint Jesus' dead body as a form of both grieving and memorial. But upon arriving, they saw something that they never intended to see. And they heard realities and promises that they never intended to hear. In fact, at the end of verse 7, we find one of the greatest promises given to anyone at any time. There in Galilee, you will see him. Go, so that you might witness with your very own eyes the truths that I am telling you today. And women, that statement by the angel, you will see Jesus, that had to ultimately have been what brought about their peculiar reaction as recorded in Mark, by Mark in verse 8. Verse 8, and they went out. Essentially, they heeded the angel's commands. And they fled from the tomb, right? They're not sticking around. (laughs) For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This brings us to our fourth and final question. 
Why did they remain silent? Why did they remain silent? They said nothing to anyone, Mark says. I mean, we have to understand these sorts of waves of emotion that would have been washing over these three. End of verse 5, alarm and amazement washes over them. But that eventually gives way to trembling and astonishment in the middle of verse 8, which soon gave way to fear. The end of verse 8. These women were in absolute shock by everything that had just happened to the point of being utterly speechless. In fact, Mark suggests that they were trying to make sense of what they had just seen and heard, contrasted with what they had seen and heard some 36 hours earlier. They went expecting to see the same thing. They saw something completely different. And the result, Mark tells us, was stunning fear. And then, the end. The end. You might notice in your Bible that there's some commentary there suggesting that these last, this last section may not be can, part of the canon. In fact, I believe for a variety of reasons the case can and should be made that the statement made in Verse 8 is actually how Mark chose to end his gospel. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16 is most likely a scribal edition that has inadvertently crept in the original text. Don't worry. Your faith does not hinge on those 11, 12 verses. But follow me here. The earliest, first indication, the earliest, oldest most reliable manuscripts of, that we have of Mark dated as far back as 4th century. They don't even have these, that fi- those final verses, verses 9 through 20. Second, there's 18 different terms used in those final 12 verses that's actually unique to the rest of the text. Why speak in a different way, Mark? Thirdly, the structure of these remaining verses is different. You can look over them. Fourth, one of the most strongest points to me personally is that Mark's abrupt ending, they were afraid, is actually consistent with his abrupt beginning. Mark doesn't even begin at the beginning in a sense. He has no genealogy. It's just boom, Jesus there, about the age of 30, being baptized by John in the Jordan. And the sense is that both of those Both the abrupt ending and the abrupt beginning are used deliberately by Mark as a sort of literary device to have a sort of dramatic impact upon his readers. But fifthly, I believe Mark does this. He ends the story so abruptly because he ultimately wants his readers to feel what those first witnesses felt. Mark wants us to be continually amazed, even alarmed, by the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, given the sudden conclusion of Mark's gospel, for they were afraid, who in the world ends a story like that? Right? That's the ultimate cliffhanger. They were afraid, and what? Tell us more, Mark. No, they said nothing. 
because they were afraid. The end. Fearful silence. But I genuinely believe that Mark does this because he's wanting to offer an account of Jesus that is filled with that same sort of astonishment and amazement. Mark doesn't want us walking away from his gospel just thinking that Jesus of Nazareth was a pretty swell guy, a likable fellow, if you will. Rather, Mark wants us to be absolutely stunned, even blown away by who Jesus is. Because that is precisely what happened for those who first encountered him, encountered Jesus during his earthly ministry. All throughout the retelling of Jesus' life and ministry, Mark has noted for 16 chapters that people were often afraid of Jesus. And so it was no different for those who were the first to hear of his having conquered the grave. Men and women, we simply cannot afford to be casual in our attitude towards Jesus Christ, especially on Easter morning. Given everything that he said and did throughout the events leading up to and including his death and subsequent resurrection. Nobody this morning gets to walk out of here saying, wow, what a nice story. Mark and the other gospel writers have left us no room for for that to be our response. None whatsoever. And so having heard and considered both Mark and the other parallel accounts, I suppose we can either choose to do one of two things. We can either ignore them or we can accept them. We can either choose to ignore them and ultimately disregard Jesus, disregard the historical account of who he was, and ultimately dismiss the records, dismiss all of the claims, just throw it in the trash, choose to turn a blind eye. We can choose to do that. Or we can choose, by the work of the Spirit, to accept the teaching of God's word by falling upon our knees in astonishment that Jesus would do that for you and I. And in turn, we could receive his sacrificial gift of forgiveness and grace. Those are our two options. Accept it or ignore it. I hate to tell you, there's no third option. There simply cannot be. For the one whom we celebrate on Easter Sunday is the glorious Son of God who willingly suffered and died in our place as believers and who rose in victory over death and the grave. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And those who were the last to be with Jesus in his death were the first to hear the amazing and miraculous news of his resurrection. Those women who had ardently placed their faith in Christ alone were given the honor and privilege of seeing with their own eyes his great power and authority over all things. I submit to you, those women saw what they saw that morning because they believed what they believed. And I would propose to every one of us here this morning... That that news, the news, the story, the historical event that Jesus has risen, to borrow the words of Luke, is actually good news of great joy. 
In fact, I believe it was and still is of even greater joy than the news of the birth of Jesus, primarily because of the reality of this, that Jesus' bodily resurrection accomplished. I referenced Peter's sermons. Let's come back to that. Acts 2. In Acts 2, the apostle Peter proclaims in one of his most familiar sermons, beginning in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see what I mean? Miraculous. Glorious. It's not a dramatic overstatement to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ simply changes everything as we know it. There's simply no way that you or I could ever overestimate its utter importance. Because for us who believe, this text, this story, is the story of all stories. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the death of Jesus would simply be a tragic ending to such a profound life. Without it, history would mark Jesus as just another man. As, as extraordinary as he proved to be. Just another man. Without it, there's no other plausible explanation for the empty tomb that first Easter morning. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity would essentially be just another dead religion among other countless dead religions. And without it, the church as we know it would simply not exist. It was read to us this morning by Steve. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been risen, hypothetically, Paul says, if he hasn't been risen, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith, that's in vain too. But praise God, all of it's true. All of it. Everything promised about Christ in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the New Testament. Paul says that. He says, verse 19, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, this is the greatest turn in the story. But in fact, Christ has been, risen, has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And women, by the resurrection... Jesus, in Paul's words, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, Romans 1.4. By it, everything that Jesus said was proven once and for all to be the truth. He wasn't lying. By it, Jesus' death was verified as accepted by his Father as payment for all of our sins as God's people. Accounts, every one of them paid in full. And by it, Jesus was proclaimed as victor over death and all of its painful realities and consequences. Revelations 1, John records these words from Jesus. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who else can make that claim? Because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of that historical event, everything has changed. And I don't mean just in our world, but in your life and in mine. And by it, the triune God has been, is being, and will continue to be glorified. Philippians 2 verse 8, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wasn't here Friday night, but I'm pretty sure that was read. But verse 9, Paul continues by saying, Therefore, because of that humble obedience, therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed, every tongue, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of that has happened and more because of the event described in those familiar words. He is not here. He is risen. In closing, renowned atheist Richard Dawkins is quoted as saying this. He says, I cannot know for certain But I think, I think God is very improbable and I live my life on the assumption that he's not there. It's quite a statement. And maybe that's the attitude of your heart and mine this morning. I want to be very clear. Our faith as Christians is not based upon some abstract theory or unexplainable reality. We're not just living our lives on the basis of human assumptions about ultimate realities. Rather, our faith as believers is rooted in the inerrant word of God, which includes the historical account of the resurrection of the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. Let me say that more simply. We know that Jesus has risen. Why? Because it says he was. And as Paul says in Romans 3 verse 4, let God be true. Every man a liar. And women, it's Jesus whom we are called to believe. And it is in him that we must, we must place our, tr- our faith and trust as sinners. Those who stand under a guilty sentence, condemned because of every violation. All it would have taken is one to make us a lawbreaker. We need forgiveness. And it's only found in Christ. He has risen. Do you believe that? Has that truth changed everything for you? John tells us in the opening to his gospel, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a right. What a privilege. Children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you believing him 
Are you believing in him this Easter morning with regards to your past sin, with regards to your present circumstances, even with regards to your future destiny? Are you believing in him? I hope and pray that your answer to those questions and others like it is a resounding yes. After all, Jesus, the resurrected one, is our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know our innermost thoughts. We know the doubts that continually shake us. With our lips, we confess that we believe in the resurrection, but so often our persistent fears reveal that unbelief that remains. We say that in Christ we have everything we need for life and death, yet when our health or possessions or reputations are threatened with danger or loss, we just fret and we fall apart. Lord, we know that we will one day have new glorious bodies, but we are so quickly undone when our earthly bodies fail us. We run from discomfort and pain and even withdraw from others who are suffering, unwilling to do the costly work of loving them well in their distress. And for that, Lord, we pray that you would please forgive us. Lord Jesus, you, we believe by faith, are the resurrection and the life. You entered this world of suffering and death, and you gave yourself over into the hands of those who hated you, those who were determined to kill you. Yet in your darkest moments, you fixed your eyes on the joy that was set before you. That after your resurrection, you would possess us as your people forever. And you never wavered in your desire to have us as your inheritance. Or in your faith that the Father would accomplish this through your death and resurrection. Thank you for enduring through deep suffering in order that we might become like you and be with you forever. Holy Spirit, you are the one who brings life to dead bodies and will one day bring life back to these mortal bodies also. And when we find ourselves in the depths of suffering and loss, please help us to cry out to you. Help our unbelief and help us to survive the weakness of our flickering faith by persisting, by resting in the perfection of Jesus Christ on our behalf and in all of our trials and afflictions fix our eyes on our heavenly inheritance which is stored up for us in Christ in a place where no power in heaven on earth or under the earth can touch it and we pray come quickly Lord Jesus we long to be free from our sin and to enjoy you forever with sinless hearts with clear eyes and with minds that are devoted to knowing you and serving you with loving delight. We thank you for this morning. We pray all these things in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand now as we sing of that, not only that miraculous, wonderful gift, but that completed work of God.